Well, good morning to you all. This section of 1 Corinthians that we're in now began back at the beginning of chapter 12. And Paul is answering a direct question from the Corinthian church concerning spiritual gifts. He begins by setting the framework for the proper function of these spiritual gifts. First things first, he asks a question. Does the person who claims to have a gift confess Jesus Christ as Lord? Number one. So Paul tells them that these gifts come from one source, God himself. And that these gifts are distributed out by the Holy Spirit for the common good. They're to build up God's people and his church. And Paul pictures the church as a body. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. Whatever your background, whatever your nationality, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're young or old, if you're a Christian here this morning, by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. And just like the human body, we need all those different parts to function, such as our eyes, our ears, and our nose, etc., etc. Each part has an, is as essential as the other. It has an essential role to play. The foot or the ear, they may consider themselves less important than the hand or the eye, but the body wouldn't function if it were a gigantic eye. How would we hear? If we were a gigantic ear, how would we be able to smell? As Ben pointed out the other week, we all need a colon and a small intestine. They're essential parts of the body. And this was a really important lesson for the people in the Corinthian church. If we've learned anything about them during this time in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, they were arrogant. They were divided, full of schisms, one-upmanship. They did crazy things like take each other to secular courts to settle petty differences. And Paul has spent a large part of chapter 11 dealing with and correcting how they commemorate the Lord's Supper. And it exposes the worst excesses and divisions in the church. He tells them God has put the body together giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, but that members would have the same concern for each other. Each member serves a vital role in Christ's body. There's a diversity of gifts in the church, but each one is as important as the other. So that's the first part of the framework set up. He then goes on, Paul does, in chapter 13 and shows the crucial foundation that underpins every gift and how it's used. While spiritual gifts are, be, are, be, are to be desired, especially the greater gifts, there's something superior than them that shouldn't be just desired. It's to be pursued. Love is greater than all the spiritual gifts. Therefore, it's to be pursued rather than gifts. If gifts are 
obsessively pursued, you'll end up being like a clanging cymbal. It'll be useless. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we saw last week that this is perfectly portrayed in Jesus Christ. His command to us is to love the Lord with everything we've got and love our neighbor as ourselves. Love is the pinnacle. So Paul, he's carefully laid out that groundwork. And now in chapter 14, he gives practical direction in what these spiritual gifts look like in the church. And in particular, when the church meets together. And so we're going to look at the first 25 verses of chapter 14 under four headings in four sections. Firstly, priority, and then clarity, then ability, and lastly, divinity. Priority, clarity, ability, divinity. So priority is verses 1 to 5. I think it's fair to say that the gatherings of the Corinthian church were chaotic. It wasn't a healthy atmosphere, whether you were a believer or not. And Paul, just as he's addressed other issues before this one, he intends to restore some order. He concentrates here primarily on two spiritual gifts, that of prophecy and tongues. And the Corinthians, they they set their sights on speaking in tongues, and they considered that to be the highest of all the gifts. Speaking in tongues was a major part of their meetings and therefore was a major part of the confusion and chaos of the church gathering. Paul highlights a contrasting gift of prophecy which would strengthen, it would encourage and comfort others rather than confuse like tongues. So before we go any further, I think we need to try to define these gifts so I think we need to, the first thing we need to do is try and categorize them. So tongues should be considered to be in the personal category of gifts, whereas prophecy would be in the, in the public category of gifts. Paul, in verse 2, he says this, For the person who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. So speaking in tongues then is between an individual and God. It's personal. Perhaps when you read about speaking in tongues here, you think of Acts chapter 2 and that day of Pentecost when the apostles had tongues of fire resting on each one of them and they were able to speak in other tongues. Literally, they were enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak different languages they were able to communicate in the different languages of the multitudes of the people that were in Jerusalem at the time now tongues in the context of 1 Corinthians is clearly different as no one else understands what's being said he speaks mysteries in the spirit says Paul 
It's clearly a deep form of communion between a believer and God. So I think we need to see tongues in the light of what Paul tells us in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. This is what he says. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who, who knows a person's thought except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. See, this goes beyond our head knowledge. It links the core of our being to the core of God's being. And in Romans 8, verse 26, Paul speaks of the Spirit interceding for us with inexpressible groanings, a particular experience that transcends our normal conscious self. By the Holy Spirit's way, it's a, it's a, a, a way of communicating to God private, deep concerns that lie at the very core of us that we can't express in normal language. We need the Holy Spirit's help to convey them. Now, I've lived a fairly sheltered life, to be honest. And the church in Corinth is really far removed from my experience of churches. I'm far more used to awkward silences than strange tongues. But I remember one time when I went to a men's breakfast in a church, years and years ago now, and the food was great, the people were really friendly and welcoming, and it was, it was fine. But it all started to go south after the breakfast was over. And one guy stood up and he began to pray. And it didn't take long before I hadn't got a clue what he was saying. Not a clue. It was just some weird noise. And then a few others stood up and, and joined in. And to be honest, it sounded like a bunch of walruses. I hadn't got a clue what was going on. It made no sense to me at all. And just as Paul has made clear to the Corinthians, the gift of tongues might be self-edifying. It may build you up personally, but no one else understands what's going on. It doesn't build up the church. On occasion, these sounds, this primitive sounding groaning, this, this other language can be translated to build up the church at a particular time. But it isn't the norm. Now prophecy, that's distinctly different. It's essentially this. It's believers disclosing an interpretation of the will of God that they've received by the Holy Spirit in a common language. Now, when I started preaching a couple of years ago now, Ben, he gave me some advice. He said this, leave some space in your notes for the Holy Spirit to work. Now, I preach from loads of notes. I think if I preached a sermon without notes, it would be complete confusion. It would be like me speaking in tongues. I might as well be a walrus standing at the front here rather than anything else. It definitely wouldn't be prophecy. I dread to think what I'd say. But I've understood that it's crucial, and I've experienced this, that it's crucial for the Holy, to leave space for the Holy Spirit to guide me, to say certain things perhaps in a, in a certain way, or to re-emphasize something. Now I've prayed, and I trust that the Holy Spirit has been guiding me throughout my study and my note-taking. 
But I think there may be something that may need to be said at a particular time for a particular person or persons to strengthen, encourage, and comfort them. And I need to give space for that. But this isn't restricted just to preachers and preaching. Prophecy is open to all believers. It may be the result of a prolonged period of Bible study, or it may be a spontaneous thing. Maybe you've had an experience where you've been listening to a sermon and it's really hit home with you. It's spoken right directly into your heart, into a particular situation you're facing. It's given you clarity. It's strengthened you. Perhaps you've had a conversation with a fellow believer or with a small group of believers and they've spoken directly, knowingly or unknowingly, into your situation and you feel like it's, it's, it's given you that strength and that clarity. It's God-given. I believe these are prophetic moments. These are moments that shape us and help us in our walk with the Lord. They strengthen and encourage and comfort us just at the right time. Now, the gift of prophecy is far more in line with what's going on in Acts chapter 2 than tongues is. The day of Pentecost was the beginning of the fulfillment of of Joel's prophecy. Joel, the minor prophet. And Peter quotes Joel in that chapter. It says this, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my Spirit on my servants in those days both men and women, and they will prophesy. Gone are the restrictions of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all believers. So Paul concludes, speaking in tongues has its place and is not to be dismissed, but prophecy is of greater worth for the building up of God's people. Now, perhaps you think that the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, are far removed from our experience now in the church. I think that more may be more of an indictment of where we are as God's people than anything else. I read this um, from a guy called Warren Wearsby. This is what he says. Certainly the church today needs a new filling of the Spirit of God. Apart from the ministry of the Spirit, believers can't witness with power, understand the Scriptures, glorify Christ, pray in the will of God, or develop a Christian character. We need to be praying for revival, a deeper working of the Spirit in God's people, leading to confession of sin, repentance, forgiveness, and unity. So we come to clarity, verses 6 to 12. Paulie now illustrates his point by drawing out the contrast between tongues and prophecy further. He adds three other gifts to that public category, revelation, knowledge, and teaching. And these, just like prophecy, are spoken in a common language, not an unknown, indecipherable one. Paul explains it like this. 
He says, if you played a load of random notes on a flute or a harp, or you just played a single note repetitively, that cannot be considered music. That's just noise. Music is a shared language. You don't have to be in any way musical, or you don't have to play a musical instrument to get that. If you think of your favorite piece of music now with your favorite musician playing it or singing it, you can probably hear that music in your head if you really think about it. You see, what that musician is playing or singing is a range of notes in a musical system that is re recognized like a shared language. You recognize the melody line. It's been created within a shared musical language. Sophie at school, she was um, in, a, in a play and she was singing with her class some songs that are so catchy that she hasn't stopped singing them since however many weeks ago. In fact, she's taught Alice the songs and Alice is now singing them and we can't stop. I said to her this morning, can you please stop singing these songs because they've got into my head and I end up humming them as well. They're a shared musical language. We can't stop singing them. I'm absolutely sick of the sight of them. I've never heard anything like it. But it's a shared language. We, it just clicks. It goes in. We understand it. Paul goes, what about a battle sound? Back in Paul's time, the way of communicating with troops in the battlefield was with a trumpet or a ram's horn. It would play a specific tune to communicate the desired commands to the troops. If the trumpet sound was, was hit one, miss one, split one, what use would that be to the army? It would be complete confusion. They wouldn't have a clue what to do. Now, when I was doing my A-levels, I went to, on a trip to the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival. This was a, a showcase of the finest contemporary classical compositions and musicians. Now, I spent a whole day there, a whole day, morning till night, and I listened to a huge amount of noise, but not one piece of music. Not one that I could decipher. Not one that had a discernible melody that I could hum and, and it was stuck in my head after I walked away. You might as well have been listening to a washing machine on its spin cycle for a melody. There was just nothing there. It was complete musical confusion to me. Now that music may have had a deep personal significance to the composer and to the performer but it was unable to be communicated to me because it wasn't using a shared, recognizable language. So Paul, in verse 9, he says, whilst for the person speaking in tongues, it may carry significance, great significance. For those in the congregation, it's completely meaningless. It might as well be uttered in the middle of a desert, just into the air somewhere. He uses another illustration. The people of Corinth, living in a busy, bustling seaport, they would have been used to hearing different languages, just like we are today. There are some languages that, that have recognizable traits with our own, certain words that we recognize that are similar to words in our own language. But there are other languages to that that are, bear absolutely no resemblance to our language at all, to the point where it just sounds like gibberish to us. We, we don't understand it at all. They won't be 
able to effectively communicate with us and neither we with them. You see, Paul wants the Corinthians who are eager for spiritual gifts not to desire gifts that show off their supposed spiritual sophistication and in doing so cause confusion in the church. Instead, they are to desire the gifts that build up the church, gifts that grow the church. You see, we have a tendency, even now as Christians, to be big-headed and to be superior in our knowledge. Paul is telling us that doesn't help. That sows confusion. We're not to decorate the message of the gospel. We're to proclaim the message of the gospel. A little while back now, we were looking through the first few chapters of Luke. And we got to chapter 6, I think. Perhaps we got to chapter 7, but we definitely got to chapter 6. And there, it's Jesus' sermon on the plain. And if you read that sermon, it's so simple. It really is plain teaching on the plain. It's so clear that a child can understand it. But it's so profound that the greatest mind on this planet cannot fully fathom it. See, Paul came to the Corinthians with the utmost clarity and focus. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the challenge for every one of us who's a Christian here this morning. Are we simply and clearly able to speak of Christ? Can we do that? Are we praying for the Holy Spirit's help to do this effectively, for the building up of his people, his church? Let's not sow confusion. Let's not try and be superior. It doesn't help. We come to ability, verses 13 to 19. So Paul, he makes the point that those who have the gift of tongues should be praying that they can interpret themselves. Because not even the one speaking in tongues knows what they are saying. Essentially, he's saying that that speaking in tongues uses different human faculties. It's a person's spirit that speaks to God in an unknown language. The mind is not involved to the point that the person doesn't have the ability to interpret themselves without the gift of interpretation. Whilst culturally for the Corinthians to have a spiritual experience like this was considered to be superior. But Paul's clear. It's not at all superior. These individualistic experiences have no benefit to the church whatever see believers being a part of the body of Christ are to serve one another with spirit enabled gifts the mind needs to be engaged communication in meaningful words needs to happen it's essential for the gathering of God's people John O's showed us that Paul tells us in verse 15 that spirit and mind are to be actively engaged at the same time. 
We need to be speaking understandable words whilst our spirit is communing with God in a way that goes beyond our words. This is what we should earnestly seek each time we meet as a body of his people. We need to be praying for a deeper working of the Holy Spirit in us. But to suppress our minds when we worship, that's to just speak in tongues with no gift of interpretation whatsoever. That stops anyone else in the gathering from sharing in the spiritual experience or enriching it further by being involved themselves. It would be a really selfish and arrogant thing to do. And it's a destructive thing to do. Then Paul He reveals something that may be a shock to the church in Corinth. Not only does he have the gift of tongues, but he's prolific in it. He he speaks tongues more than these arrogant Corinthians do. And the reason it may have come as a shock to them is because Paul used the gift in its proper place. He used it while he was communing personally and privately with the Lord not in front of a church congregation. And in verse 19, he makes clear its place. His focus is to build up God's people at a church gathering. He'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 unintelligible gibberish words that enrich him and him only. You see, the, the gifts and the abilities that God has given each one of us. Whether they're spiritual or not, they're to be used with the sole aim of building up His church for His glory. Let our aim always be that. No matter how menial our role or responsibility is in the church or is perceived to be in the church, we need to build up the church. The church needs our gifts to grow and we come to divinity verses 20 to 25 in this section Paul gives a warning he gives a warning to those speaking in tongues without interpretation in the Corinthian church they might consider themselves to be spiritually mature but in fact they're just immature kids He'd already called them out for their immaturity in chapter 3. He said, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you are still worldly. He tells them not to be childish in the things of God but they're to be innocent as babies when it comes to evil. Paul is really using barbed humor here. Now the word behind babies means that an infant that hasn't yet developed enough to communicate in a known language. They've shown themselves as, as infants in their walk with Christ by spouting gibberish in front of the church gatherings just as a baby would. The danger is their immaturity has caused them to be open to evil. 
Paul is saying, get mature in your Christian walk and be innocent as a baby in evil, not the other way around. So he drives this home in the next verses. First he quotes from Isaiah 28. It says this, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. So Israel at this point were mocking Isaiah's prophecies. They weren't worthy of note for them. They were beneath them. So Isaiah pronounces what will happen to Israel. They will hear the message of God instead of from a prophet in their common language, God-given, from enemy invaders whose language they will not understand. It will just sound like gibberish to the Israelites as their cities were destroyed and they were enslaved. God's message will be delivered to them in an incomprehensible way. Paul told the Corinthians earlier in the letter that the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. For the Corinthians, their speaking in tongues is not a good sign. In fact, it's like the invading army proclaiming prophetic doom in an indecipherable language on the mocking Israelites. The spectacle of them speaking in tongues would be considered complete madness by unbelievers. It has the effect of driving unbelievers away from God to condemnation. It's a sign of judgment. What an incredibly negative church that drives away unbelievers. It's a picture of a childless, a loveless church. And ultimately, that's a church that God will not tolerate. In Revelation, we read about the Laodicean church, a church that has striking similarities with the church in Corinth. And this is what Jesus says about the church in Laodicea. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Perhaps you're an immature Christian here this morning. You don't need to be young to be immature. You can be an old, immature Christian. Perhaps you're doing things your own way. Perhaps you've not fully committed. Perhaps your head's turned by other things, your own self-importance, other things in your life, relationships that are dragging you away from maturing in your walk with the Lord. See, unbelievers can spot you a mile off. They'll see your laissez-faire attitude to your faith as a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. How can you believe all this stuff and yet live and act in a way that doesn't sit in harmony with it? Nothing switches unbelievers off more effectively to this glorious gospel than Christians that don't live it. Paul says that if you live like this, 
You're driving people away from God to condemnation rather than being salt and light. That should be a horrendous thought. We need to be mature in the things of God and innocent to the things of evil. I once worked years and years ago now for someone who claimed to be a Christian. And my colleagues in the office, they would tell me of all the dodgy business practices and the the wheeling and dealing and all sorts of strange stuff that he used to be, that he got on with and he got up to. And they'd say things like this to me, knowing that I went to church and all the rest of it. He says, he calls himself a Christian. If you call that Christianity, you can forget it. It doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. It drove them away. We need to hear the warning given to the Laodicean church. God will not tolerate churches, lukewarmness, spiritual superiority that doesn't help us grow. The last two verses, we end on a far more positive note. Verses 24 and 25, they show us a much better way. And it's really in stark contradiction to what's happened in the previous verses. See, the churches that employ gifts and practices that drive people away, they're nothing compared to the church that uses their gifts wisely. That's an overwhelmingly positive place. Firstly, the message spoken will be in a universally known and understood language. It benefits everyone. It clearly expounds the message of the gospel to unbelievers. See, the hearing of the gospel, it convicts us. It gets to the very root of our being. Hebrews tells us, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the gifts given to God's people by the Holy Spirit, used in love, draw unbelievers to hear the life-transforming message of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit, working through us as believers, causes unbelievers to fall on their face before God and to join in in worshipping Him and acknowledging His presence amongst them. Is that the driving force for us here this morning in this church, at Holbrook's Evangelical Church? Is that what we want? Is that what we desire? Is that what we're praying for? Do we want this church to be a place where everyone hears the good news of the message of God's redemption of sinners like me and like you and that we're used and guided by the Holy Spirit to cause unbelievers to turn to Christ Thank you.